Well, baseball season's almost here. Okay, if you're a baseball fan like I am, you know, pitchers and catchers reported this week and uh, they're getting ready. If you're a Nats fan, well, it's going to be a long season. They might already be out of it, okay? It's going to be tough. But, uh, you know, I love baseball. And uh, one of the reasons I like it so much is just the strategy and everything that goes into the game. I mean, the game itself is, is really incredible. I mean, a guy trying to hit a ball that's coming at you like 100 miles an hour and be able to see it and pick it up and get the bat to the ball that quick really is incredible. And so right now, as, as the players are reporting to camp and they're getting ready, they're going through all these different drills, right? There's fielding drills, there's pitching drills, there's batting drills, base running drills, all kinds of stuff. But did you know that players, they're also meeting with ophthalmologists and brain scientists? It's, it's this relatively new science in baseball where they've discovered, okay, the more we can help train batters to be able to see the ball better, well, the better they're going to be able to perform. And so, so they're meeting with these people, I mean, because it really is quite incredible. By the time the ball leaves the pitcher's hand and gets to the hitting zone of the batter, it takes less than half a second, right? It's coming at them at anywhere from 80 to 100 miles an hour. And in that amount of time, you have to identify the ball, know where it's going to be, be able to get the bat to the ball. And so one of the things that they're doing is they're, they're putting this screen, it's just grayscale, and then there's the baseball, and they're watching it, and they're training it, and then they make the screen lighter and lighter and lighter until the ball is basically invisible, and the only thing the players can see are the stitches on the ball because they're trying to train the hitters to be able to see the rotation and the spin on the ball and to identify just that quick as it's coming out of the pitcher's hand what type of pitch is coming so that they can get the bat to the ball. It's fascinating, really. I mean, can you imagine just sitting and staring at a, at a screen and watching just stitches kind of rotate coming at you just for hours on end? I mean, it's, it's incredible. But this is what's happening. They're training their eyes to see the ball. You know what? As, as followers of Christ, we need our eyes trained too. We need our eyes trained on who Jesus really is about his mission, the mission that he then gives us, what true faith looks like. And so Jesus, he takes his disciples and he trains them what to look for, what to see. And he does the same thing for us. I want you to see it this morning as we continue our empowered study through Mark's gospel. We'll be in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 44. Mark 12, 28 through 44. Let's check it out. John Mark writes, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far away from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the throng 
great, heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, just a reminder, it's Tuesday of the Passion Week, okay? It's Tuesday afternoon. Jesus is less than a week away from his crucifixion. And at this point, well, the religious establishment, they are determined to get him. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of how. What are they going to do? How, how is it going to work? How are they going to trap Jesus? How are they going to get Jesus? You know, it was one thing. They could try to kind of ignore him for a little bit when he was off in Galilee and kind of like a country preacher out there. But now he's entered Jerusalem. And he's upsetting the entire religious system. He's upsetting the politics of the day. And so you get all these like people collaborating together who would not usually collaborate together. All right. I mean, we saw it last week, right? You have Pharisees, you have Herodians, you have Sadducees. These people do not get along, okay? But they get along because of their hatred to Jesus. And they are determined to trap him. They're determined to get him, to be rid of him. And so their first tactic, their first line of, okay, here's how we're going to get Jesus. Well, it happens almost like it sometimes happens today. They essentially call a press conference of sorts. Okay, it's, they're in the temple courts. There's all these people around and they're thinking, okay, we can just pepper him with questions. And when we ask the right gotcha question, well, it'll be great because we'll just expose Jesus and his foolishness and he doesn't really know. and We'll get the people to turn on him. And so they're asking these questions that almost seem as if there's no right answer. Right? Like if you say this, you're wrong. And if you say that, you're wrong. We've got you nailed because there's nothing you can say that's going to be right. But Jesus in his brilliance just takes all these questions, turns them around, refocuses them back on scripture and focuses the people's hearts and intentions back to God. The people who are truly listening and the the establishment, the people who are trying to get him, well, they're just dumbfounded because they're the ones looking foolish. Well, At this point, they've basically given up on asking questions, okay? They know, okay, this isn't getting us anywhere. But there's a scribe present, and he's been hearing this back and forth, and he is amazed by Jesus. And so he asks a question. And on the surface, it almost seems like another gotcha question, but I I think perhaps that this is a question that he himself has been kind of wondering about. And he doesn't really have a good answer for it. Maybe he's been asked about it. It's it's one of those yeah, but questions, you know? And the question is, which commandment is the greatest? And no matter what you say, right? Like, well, I think this commandment is the greatest. Oh, yeah, but what about that one? You know, you're almost kind of chasing your tail in circles is how this works. There's over 600 commands. How do you pick the one that's truly the greatest? Well, Jesus, he's getting pressed. He's getting squeezed, all these things. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. It really is just a a great reminder for all of us that when life is hard, when you get 
squeezed, when you get pressed, when people are saying unkind things about you and life isn't going according to your expectations or whatever else, what comes out? What comes out in those tenseful moments? Is it scripture? For Jesus, it often is, right? And so here it is again. It just comes out. And how he does this, how it comes out is truly masterful. He begins by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. It's known as the Shema, okay? And it's this passage of scripture that every Israelite would have known from the time they were just wee ones, okay? I mean, it was going to be some of the first scripture that they ever quoted because it was quoted in the home. It was quoted in the morning. It was quoted in the evening. And so they would hear it all the time. And so as they're beginning to take their first steps, this is the passage they're quoting. And Jesus says it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then, so we love him because he is one and we love him with everything we've got. We are, like we looked at last week, we are made in his image, right? And so, hey, you give Caesar the things that bear his image. We give God the things that bear God's image. We bear his image. So we love him with everything we've got. And then he connects that to Leviticus, Leviticus 19, right? Which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So he essentially says, the greatest commandment, love God, followed closely by loving others. And then you've taken care of all the commands because that's what every command in scripture is based upon. I guess all Mosaic law right there. Here's how you love God. Here are the commands concerning how you love God. And here are the commands concerning how you love others. That takes care of them all. It's brilliant. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, right? And you want just like a helpful little tool, how do I make decisions in life? Just write this down. Draw a triangle, okay? Just draw a triangle. At the top of the triangle, write God. The other corner, you can write neighbor or others, something like that. And in the other corner, you can write self. And in the middle, write love, okay? Any, any situation you're facing and you're wondering, okay, what do I do? The question is, how do I love God and then by extension, love others in this situation, right? It works for everything. You do that, you've got it. Now, the tricky part for us is the definition of it all, right? Jesus, he redefines all these terms for the people. He redefines who they believe God to be, right? They're, they're expecting God to be this military political Messiah who's gonna come in and just revamp everything. And he's revealing God as father, a father who is not seeking to condemn the world, but seeking to save the world, to, to redeem it, to restore it, seeking people to adopt them into his family so that he has this ever-expanding family, this growing family. This is who God is. And so what is he also? Well, he, we center our lives around him, as Ethan was mentioning during communion, that he's the center of it all. We seek his kingdom and then everything else is just added because he's center to everything. And you put anything else in the center of your life, and it just doesn't work, you know. You put your career in the center of your life, and you okay, if I just get this awesome career, if I advance the ladders of success, then life will be good. If it's all about career, your marriage is in trouble. How you relate to your kids and how you parent your kids, that's in trouble. Other things give, other things flex. Your career can't hold your life. You put you in the center, right? Okay, I just gotta, I just gotta do me, right? I gotta be happy, I gotta make myself happy. If it's all about you, well, relationships unravel. 
Because nobody wants to be around someone who's just selfish and everything's all about them, right? And that gets old real quick. If you're in the middle of your life, things fall apart. So you put your kids in the middle of your life. Oh, I'm just gonna live my life for my kids. It's all about them. Then what happens? Well, your marriage can suffer because you're honoring kids above your spouse. You're, you, you're prioritizing them over and above your spouse. And then your kids mess up and they don't do what you think they're gonna do and they, they, they get into some kind of trouble or whatever. And then what happened? Well, then I lose my own worth and my own dignity and I, oh, it's all my fault. What did I do wrong? Woe is me. It's a, you put anything else in the center of your life and it crumbles. The only thing that can hold it all is God. And so Jesus is redefining who God is for people so that he's not just someone who we come and we, we get to worship on a Sunday morning or you know, we go to the religious establishment, we did our God thing and now we go about our life. No, he's the center to all of life, everything. And so he's redefining who God is. Now, when we love God because he first loved us, well, then that frees us up to love others, love neighbor as self. And so then the question comes, as someone would ask Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Because sometimes we wonder that too, right? Like, who's, who's my neighbor? The people behind me, across the street, maybe two doors down. Like, how far do I have to walk in my neighborhood until, like, they're no longer neighbors? And so, you know, we can think like that. And Jesus, when he answers that question, he does it in a radical way. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that one, right? And here, here it is, the, this Jewish guy who's in trouble. And who comes? All the other Jews and the good people, whatever, they, you know, who you think might help. They just go by and don't pay him any attention. And who helps? The Samaritan. Why? Because he loved him as neighbor. People who have nothing apart, they would even be oftentimes opposed to each other and look down on each other. He helps. And what's the point that Jesus is making? Anyone who is in need is your neighbor. And guess what? We all have needs. We're just a needy bunch. We're all a needy people. And so when we endeavor to love others because we've been loved by God, and this is our identity, this is who we are, well then God has equipped you and he's made you to meet people's needs. There will be people this week that if, if this is your life, that you will meet people this week and you're able to love them because God has made you to love them. And you know what? We, we exist in a time when loneliness is quickly becoming just an epidemic in first world countries like America. Okay? In some ways, we're more connected than we've ever been, right? With technology and screens and all this. But there are people who are just lost in screens. And there are more people today going to see counselors, psychiatrists, you name it, because of loneliness. Okay? Other issues too, but loneliness is, is taking more and more time. People are just desperate for friends. They just feel alone in this world. And when we see others, just, okay, I'm, I whoever has a need. And you say, well, that's too much for me. That's like the whole world. I can't do it. That, that's like too big for me to even think about. Well, then if you need to narrow it down, it's at least the person across the street behind you, two doors down. Okay, let's at least start there and loving our neighbors there, our like literal neighbors. But Jesus, he expands it all beyond that. But it's at least that. And then it also gets back to self because we look at ourselves. We say, I don't have the capacity for that. 
You know, I'm already redlined as it is. I'm maxed out everything I've got. I don't know that I have time for another friend. I mean, how am I going to fit another friend into my life? Or if these people really knew me, I don't think they'd really want to be my friend because I know all the junk that I've done and how I've messed up. And if they really knew that, why would they want to hang out with me in the first place? And so we can think that. But you know what Jesus does? He redefines self for us. He redefines who we are. He grounds our identity, not in what we do, but in who he is, that we find our identity in Christ. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians, first chapter of Ephesians. And he just goes through it. And he says, you are saints. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You are chosen. You're redeemed. You're adopted. You're the church. The building is not the church. The leaders are not the church. You're the church, right? And God has chosen the church, the body of Christ, to reveal to a watching world Jesus who fills all in all. How does he does? He does it through his church right now. And so this is who we are. And that means that you can love your neighbor out of the overflow of who Christ is and him working in your life. And by the way, is, you know, First John, he makes it really clear. He says, if you think you can love God and not love others, you're deceiving yourself, Right? There's no such thing as like a Christian who just says, I love God, I just don't really love people. No, you're deceived, okay? You are something, but not Christian, all right? John makes that extremely clear. And so we, we love others because it's who we are. It's what God produces. And what else that does is it frees us up to love others without needing anything back, right? It's nice to when I love to be loved, I enjoy that. But I'm able to love and I don't have to be loved in return. Why? Because I'm loved perfectly by Jesus. I'm whole in him, I com I'm complete in him. So my loving is not dependent upon how the other person responds, reacts, treats me, their love in return. That makes no difference. I am complete in Christ, whole in him, covered in him, so I'm able to love others. Can I tell you a little secret about my marriage, okay? Steph, she doesn't need me, all right? She really doesn't. And she went to Iowa this last week helping her mom out. She just had surgery and doing all that. She was fine. She got along completely fine without me. You know, if I was gone and out of here, She'd be sad, right? It'd be, it'd be hard. It'd be difficult. But she doesn't need me. She wants me. That's actually pretty fun, you know? I actually like that pretty good. We're whole in Christ. And so she doesn't need me to be the perfect spouse. I don't need her to be the perfect spouse. Jesus is the perfect spouse. And so what does that do? It frees us up to love one another, not based on what we get from the other. Not, okay, I can love you well if you meet all my needs and you make me feel this way and you do all this, then I can love. But if you, if you disappoint, if you hurt, if you do this, well, then my love, no, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because it didn't work that way for Jesus with us. He didn't just say, you know what, if you love me back, then I'll love you well. So 
when we're functioning best, it's when we realize I'm whole in Jesus. Now my love is not dependent upon her love and her action. No, it's simply dependent upon what Jesus has done for me. And this is why Paul, when he gives instructions to husbands and wives, how you live with one another, it's not dependent upon the other person. Husbands, you self-sacrifice, self-sacrificially lay down your life in order to love your wife. If she loves you back, if she honors you, if she respects you, great. But it's not dependent upon that. It's dependent upon what Jesus has done. In the same way, wives, you submit, you, you respect, you honor your husband, not because he loves you well, but because you've been loved well by Jesus. See, Jesus, he's redefining who we are, that we are whole and we are complete in him, and that frees us up to love. And by the way, Jesus redefines love as well. Our culture would tell us that love is emotional, right? It's this feeling that you get, these butterflies in your stomach, that that's what love is. And that love, I cannot love you unless I approve of everything you're doing. And I support it. And I say, oh yeah, this is great. I, I support all that. Jesus, he redefines love. And he shows us that love is not so much an emotion as it is a determination, a matter of the will. And that love is not simply approval and patting someone on the back and say, yes, this is great. I support you. You do you. This is great. Oh, this is awesome. No, that's not love. Love is being truthful, being honest, building one another up, sharpening each other. God is love. Jesus is love. So therefore, everything he did was loving. When he entered the temple courts and he flipped over the tables and he does all this and he drives out the money changers and all this, that was loving. When, when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, that was loving. Why? You know what would have been incredibly unloving? For him just to go in and just, I support all this. This is great. You know, you guys are doing such a good job leading the people and loving them well. I, I, I know that we really should be about the scripture, but y'all are making money and I support it. That would be incredibly unloving, right? Because it just reinforces sinful behavior, poor leadership, all of that. Love is honest. It builds up. And yeah, we're to do that gently, but sometimes if they don't hear it that way, Jesus shows us that you got to be a little bit more, make sure they get it. So here's the thing. We bring people to Jesus because he's the one who loves perfectly. That, that's, that's our job. We give them Jesus. We bring people to Jesus. We don't preach a gospel of moralism. That's not what we lead with. We don't lead with, well, if you did this differently, that would be good. We lead with Jesus because he's the one who, who can reach into your pride. He's the one who reaches into your greed. He's the one who reaches into your anxiety. He's the one who reaches into the lust. He's the one who reaches into the envy. And he's the one who reshapes it, who redeems it, if you understand who Jesus is. Because he's the answer for all of our problems, right? Pride. When we rightly understand that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves, 
He paid for our sin problem, that he died on the cross, that he rose again. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. When we understand that, when we believe that, what do we do? We repent of our pride, thinking that life is about us and that we can do it. And we turn to Jesus so that we can be changed by him to do what he's called us to do, make disciples. When we understand that, hey, all all this greed, we think, oh, if I can just get more, that would be life. When we understand that Jesus has for us an inheritance that is secure, that if he were to tell us about it right now, we wouldn't even understand it. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't even understood. You cannot comprehend the inheritance that he has for you. When you understand that, then what happens? We repent of our greed. We turn to Jesus and we just walk in the splendor of his majesty and of his grace and him who holds all this together. Our anxiety, when we understand that Jesus cares for the birds of the field and the, or the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, and if he cares about them, you know he's got us. When we understand that, we repent of our anxiety and we turn to Jesus. Lust, when we understand that, that Jesus, he fills everything in every way. He is the sustainer of all of life. He has everything we need for life and ministry. When we understand that, we repent of our lust for wanting something or someone to fill the emptiness in our hearts. And what do we do? We turn to Jesus, him who fills everything in every way. It's every issue in life. Jesus is the answer. So as God's people, we don't give people moralism. We give them Jesus. To love people is to give them Jesus. That's why we say it here all the time. Share Jesus. Impact people. And when you give Jesus, what happens? Well, then you reveal you love God. That's what John says. That's that's how you know. Now, the scribe, he hears Jesus saying all this and he's amazed, right? I mean, you see his response. I love his response because he just quotes it all back to Jesus. He just gets everything Jesus just said. He just regurgitates it right back. So this is incredible. And when I really think about it, what this means is to love like this, love God and neighbor like this, well, that's more important than any kind of burnt offering or any sacrifice or anything else. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, you've answered wisely. You are close to the kingdom. Not yet in it, though. Isn't that a, Not yet. Others, he says, oh, yeah, it's yours. But not, not this guy, not yet. Why? Because it's one thing to believe, but it's another for Jesus to be Lord and to submit yourself to his leadership and to his rule of life. And so, you know, the demons believe that he's got all the right answers, that what he says is true, who Jesus is. They, they, they rightly understand that. But... To be Christian is to submit to Jesus' lordship over your life. That's what Paul says. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we say, okay, you now guide my steps. Now, at this point, as Jesus is explaining all this, the, the religious leaders, they, they really just throw up their hands. They're like, I, we're done peppering him with questions. He's too smart for us. This isn't going to work. This is not the way we're going to get him. So they essentially give up. Jesus, he's got an audience. There's people in the temple courts. So he keeps on teaching. And he just then, I think for fun, just kind of poses a question for himself. Like, okay, you could have asked me this one too. But of course you wouldn't because it reveals your own folly. And so the question is, uh, you know, David 
why does David call the Messiah Lord? Like they rightly understand that, that the Messiah will be the son of David. They're correct, but only partially so. What they fail to understand is what that really means. They think that being the son of David means that the Messiah is going to come with all this military and political might. He's going to restore Israel. Things will be great. But Jesus, the Messiah, he's far greater than David. His kingdom is far more expansive than Israel. He's come for all nations. He's come for all people. And so they don't understand that. They don't process that. And Jesus, he doesn't even explain it all. He just quotes Psalm 110. He doesn't really explain their misunderstanding. And what are the people? I mean, Mark says that the people heard Jesus gladly, right? They're like, man, this guy's a great teacher. I could listen to him talk all day. Do they understand what Jesus is saying? No, they don't got a clue. But they like the way he's speaking. So yeah, it's the same thing with Herod. You remember Herod and John the baptizer? Herod loved hearing John talk. So man, I, he heard him gladly, the scriptures tell us. And then what did Herod do? Oh, he had John beheaded. These people, they hear Jesus gladly. What are they going to do in a couple days? Crucify him. Why? Because they don't get it. They hear him, but they don't understand. And so Jesus, he's going to make sure they understand this next part, though. Because he pointedly goes after the religious establishment. He lumps them all into this one class and he just eviscerates them. And he goes through point by point by point all these things that they misunderstand and what they're doing wrong. He begins with their dress code. He says, these guys come in and they're wearing these long fancy robes and they think this is what faithful uh, fidelity to God looks like. And it's detestable to him. Any time that you make religion some kind of outward appearance, and they try to build their authority on their dress code. You know, Jesus never did that. He never built his authority on his dress code. What did he build it on? His teaching. He, he, he just wore the normal, ordinary robes of the day. He didn't come in all dressed up, looking fancy, as if this is somehow an offering to God. No. He says, offering to God is your life. It's, 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 it's how you love him and the, with your mind and your heart and your soul. and your, That's what it looks like. And so anytime, if you're ever in a place where they're trying to teach dress code, run. Because that's not it. That, that's not what faith is about. And so he eviscerates the leadership for this. And then he condemns them for longing human praise. Right? You, you want the praise of the people. This is, this is what you're after. You, you want to be able to sit in the place of honor. You want all these people in the marketplace to come and shake your hand and tell you how great you are. And any kind of festival that's there, you sit in this very special seat. That's what you're after? Just the praise of people? And he nails them for that. Because the first time I went to Sierra Leone, Africa, we're doing a teaching there, and it was 110 degrees outside. It was blistering hot. And we come into a building probably about half this size, and there's no AC. And so if it's 110 outside, no AC inside, and we probably had a crowd about this size, and you're all kind of jammed in there together. I mean, it was just miserably hot. I was one of the teachers, but there were several others. And so when I finished teaching, there was a row of chairs by the windows. And, and uh, the leaders came to me and said, oh, Pastor Steve, it's so great having you here, you know, this missionary. Please, when you're done speaking, take this honored seat by the window so you can feel the breeze coming in. 
And I said, well, who else is gonna be sitting there? Well, all the other leaders, all the other speakers, that, that's where they're gonna be, you know, the honored seats. I said, no, I will not sit there. Like, I will sit with the people. They said, oh no, you, you cannot do that. No, our people, they wouldn't understand that. Like that would, that would be too foreign to them. And then it would just be difficult. I said, no, no, no. The only way I'm talking is if I can sit with the people. And so I sat, right? If you can imagine, like I sit right in the middle, okay, of this section. Okay, and there were probably about two sections there. And because I was a leader and they'd never seen this before, I sit right in the middle and it was like this whole room, this whole room, just all gathered right into this section. And they all nudge up against me. And I mean, I don't sit this close with my wife, okay? And I've got people just like, you know, they're basically in my lap and I'm sweating profusely. I mean, at that point I was thinking, maybe I should have taken the seat of honor, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? I went back two years later, they don't have those seats of honor anymore. The people, the leaders are sitting with the people. And it all gets back to this. God eviscerates that. Jesus eviscerates this. We don't do this for the praise of people. That's not how you lead. And then he lambasts them for how they pray. He says, you like to pray these long prayers of eloquence. And you sound so smart and so pious and use all these big words so that people can come up and just fawn over you. And, oh, man, you must be so spiritual in the way you talk to God. It's so incredible. And Jesus says, I find that pathetic. Because why are you, who are you really praying to? You're basically praying to yourself just so other people can come and tell you how great you are. And so he's nailing them point after point after point. Why? Because it's all about externals. It's all external. It's what you wear. It's what people say. It's how you pray. It's all that. And so he just eviscerates. Listen, you know that you love God by what you do in private. I mean, that's where it starts. You make much of God in private when no one is looking. And then that translates into public and how you live. These guys, all they think about is the public. How are we going to be perceived? What are people going to think? How, how are we going to be honored and respected? You make much of God in private when no one is looking. I think it must have been heartbreaking for Jesus just to be there and to see these people who are supposed to be leaders and leading people to love God and love others. And what do they do? They're just teaching people to love them. I think it must have been heartbreaking. He's sitting there and he's watching these people come and give their offerings. He's sitting there watching this take place. And then he sees this lady, a, a widow, a poor widow, Mark tells us, who everyone else overlooks. No one else sees her. The religious establishment, they wouldn't have even noticed her. They would have looked right by her, right over her. Even the disciples, they don't notice her. You know, in the next chapter, we see the disciples there. See the disciples there enamored with just Jerusalem. It's their first time in the big city, probably. And they're talking about how big the stones are. And this is what captures their attention. Jesus sees her. She's satisfied. You know, all these other religious leaders, all the, they, they think that they will be satisfied if they have the praise of people, if they have this authority, if they have this respect, if they have all this, then life will be good, then they will be satisfied. This lady comes, she has two small copper coins, they add up to a penny, a penny. You know, today we, we have a shortage of pennies in our country, you know why? 
Because we get a penny and what do we do with it? We just throw it in a jar somewhere. We just leave it in our car. We don't really, we don't even hardly think about pennies. And so what happens? They get out of circulation and we need more pennies. We just run low. This lady, it's all she's got. Now, if it were us, right, maybe we'd look at it and we'd say, you know, okay, I got, the, I got one penny to my name. I, I need to at least keep that and then maybe I can like build up a little bit and then at some point later I can give. Or maybe we think, you know what, okay, I give God half a penny, I give me half a penny, that's pretty generous, that's fair. Aren't you glad that God was never fair with us? I mean, aren't you thankful for grace, for mercy, that he never just looks at us and says, okay, you know what? Here's everything you've done. I'm going to be fair with you. Generous and this is good, but who'd want to trade places with her? No one wants to trade places with her. She's a poor widow. She's experienced heartbreak. She's experienced devastation, hard things in life. And now she's got nothing and everything she had, she just gave away. Who's trading place with her? And Jesus calls his disciples over and says, look, that's faith. That's life. That's satisfaction. That's what, that's what it's all about. What's he doing? He's training his disciples to see, to see what faith looks like, to see how life is meant to be lived. And we have to search the scriptures and we have to allow Jesus to train our eyes to see what really matters in life. We allow Jesus to train our eyes to see what really matters in life. Have you ever seen a mom who's like trying to patiently instruct a young child to look at something, right? Have you seen this? And you're like, hey, look over there. Do you see that? That's incredible. Do you, maybe, maybe it's at the zoo or something. Do you see this animal and the kid's like looking all over the place? And mom's like, no, 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 do you see? And the child's just not getting it. And so what does the mom do? Well, she gently just, just takes the child by the head and just kind of reorients their head so that they can see whatever it is she wants them to see gently and lovingly so that they don't miss it. This is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. And this is what he wants to do for you and me too. To gently and lovingly just take us and reorient our lives so that we don't miss what life is about. So that we don't miss what true faith looks like. So we can see people as they're meant to be seen. Heavenly Father, God, you are a good, patient, forbearing, generous God. God, we misdefine terms all the time. We misunderstand who you are, who our neighbor is, who we are, what love is. 
God, would you just gently and lovingly just kind of turn our eyes to your scripture, to who you are, to who you've called us to be in light of our identity in your son, Jesus Christ. God, may we love others as you call us to love because we have been perfectly loved by you. We need your help for this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.